Chapter 3 of Marooned in the Forest, The Story of a Primitive Fight for Life by Alpheus Hyatt Verrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Important Discoveries. For a moment I was almost stunned by the discovery, but presently I realized that some prowling creature had robbed me of the fish which I had taken such pains to capture, and that I had only myself to blame for leaving the trout so carelessly within reach of any four-footed thief that might pass by. It was a keen disappointment to be deprived of my expected feast, but there was nothing to be done save to drain another pool and capture more fish if I wanted to eat trout that day. I was anxious, however, to discover what manner of beast had stolen my fish, and I sought carefully in the soft earth and among the vegetation for signs of footprints. I had not long to search and soon discovered a number of tracks which I recognized as those of a fisher cat, a large, marten-like animal which every woodsman knows for an inveterate thief. My first thought was to set a trap to capture the fisher, but knowing the flesh to be unfit to eat, I abandoned the idea as a waste of time and trouble and set about my work of draining another pool. This time, I selected a rocky basin worn by the water of the brook in the ledge itself, a sort of pothole, with solid walls which obviated the necessity of chinking up the openings and crevices as I was obliged to do in the pool I had drained before. With my birch bark dipper, the work of bailing out the pothole was simple, and I soon secured a couple of good-sized trout. With these and my frogs, I dined well and decided to set forth on my tramp as soon as possible, for now that I could obtain fish so readily, I had little fear of starving, for I knew that every brook and river in the forest swarmed with trout. I deemed it wise, however, first to wait until I could be sure of determining the exact points of the compass, and I also wished to determine the success or failure of my deadfall. Although the sun shone through the cleft in the forest formed by the stream, yet it gave me only a vague idea of direction. And while I knew by the sun that the river flowed in a more or less southerly course at this spot, yet I wished to familiarize myself with the various compass points and to discover some other means of distinguishing north from south and east from west, for I had little doubt that there would be many days on which the sun would not shine. Accordingly, on the following morning I started into the woods while the sun was yet low to study and reason out any signs which would aid me in maintaining a straight course through the forest. As soon as I was well into the woods, I looked about with minute care for any details which would be of use, and also examined the trees very carefully for moss and lichens, for, as I have already mentioned, I had heard that moss grew more abundantly on one side of trees than the other, but I had forgotten which side it was. Nearly every tree was well covered with lichens and moss, and I could not see that these growths were any thicker on one side than the other. I was about to abandon the scheme for determining direction when I made a discovery. Glancing up and down the trunks in search of the moss growths, I noticed that one side of every tree was dark colored and damp, whereas the other side was grayish and drier. And the damp side, I soon found, corresponded to the north as determined by my glimpse of the sun above the river. I was quite elated by this, and I now noticed that the mosses did appear heavier and more luxuriant on the damp side of the trees than on the dry side. A further scrutiny and comparison of the various trees also convinced me that the branches, twigs, and leaves were thicker and more regular on the south side of the trees than on the north, and that more dried and dead branches and stubs projected from the north side of the trees than from the south side. Fixing these facts in my mind, I determined to test my discoveries by actual experiment, and without looking at the tree trunks, I wandered aimlessly ahead for several hundred yards. Then, closing my eyes, I walked slowly about for some time, bumping into numerous trees and tripping over fallen branches several times, until I felt that I had lost all sense of direction. Then, 
opening my eyes, I looked about. I was out of sight or sound of the river. The only signs of sunshine were faint, bright patches amid the lofty foliage of the trees, and nothing was in view which seemed familiar. For a moment, my heart thumped, and I shuddered to think what might happen if my signs failed and I could not find my way back to the river. It was a dangerous experiment, the peril of which I did not fully realize even then, but pulling myself together, I focused my attention on the trees about me. There was no question about it. Scarcely a glance was needed to show me which side of the trees faced the north and which the south, and knowing that the river flowed to the east of the woods wherein I stood, I turned and started to retrace my steps. Even as I did so, I realized how important was my newly acquired knowledge of this feature of woodcraft, for the direction which I had felt sure would lead me toward the river was exactly opposite to that which was shown to be right by the trees. I was greatly pleased, for now I knew that in case rapids, cascades, or cliffs prevented me from following the river, I could make detours through the forest, and, moreover, where the river turned and swung from its southerly course, I could save miles of weary tramping by cutting across through the woods. Thinking of such matters, and only glancing now and then at the trees to assure myself of my direction, I was suddenly aroused by a large hare or rabbit, which leaped from behind a dead stump almost at my feet and scampered off among the shadows. For a moment I stood still, watching the creature as he flashed across the open spaces and thinking regretfully what a fine supply of food was flitting beyond my reach. Then glancing down, I caught sight of a great mass of fungus growth upon the base of the stump from which the hare had jumped. The fungus was dull orange or yellow and grew in a form resembling sponge or coral. I had often seen the same thing before and had never given it more than a momentary glance, but this mass instantly riveted my attention, for one side of it had been eaten away and bits of the nibbled fungus were strewn upon the earth. This, then, was what the hare had been eating, and I realized that by setting a snare or trap beside it, I might be able to capture the rabbit. There was no time like the present for attempting the feat, and I at once set about preparing a trap. It was merely a simple twitch-up, such as every farmer's boy uses for catching rabbits, partridge, and other small creatures, and while a few days before it would have been beyond me, it was now simple with my knowledge of hemlock roots and the self-reliance which I was so rapidly acquiring. Cutting a number of short sticks, I pushed them into the earth about the fungus, thus enclosing it on all sides but one. On either side of the opening thus left, I drove two stout stakes with notches near the upper ends. From a bit of dead wood, I then whittled out a spindle-shaped piece just long enough to reach from one of these stakes to the other. Then, with a fine hemlock root, I formed a noose, tied the spindle to the fiber just above it, and fastened the end of the root to the tip of a small sapling close by. Bending down the ladder, I slipped the spindle into the notches in the stake, spread the noose across the opening, and my snare was completed. I was very proud of my work, simple as it was, and was quite confident that when the hare returned to finish his meal, he would push his head through the noose, dislodge the spindle, and would be jerked into the air and killed by the spring of the sapling. I stood for a moment looking at the snare and the fungus and suddenly roared with laughter at my own stupidity. Here I had been working for nearly an hour to set a trap which might or might not catch the rabbit, and within a few inches was a supply of food of far more value and to be had without the least effort. Surely, if a rabbit could eat the fungus, so could I, and I plucked a bit of the queer growth and tasted it. It had a rather musty but not unpleasant taste with a slight nutty flavor, and I judged that, cooked, it might be very palatable. 
The question of eating mushrooms had occurred to me before this, but I knew nothing as to the edible qualities of fungus except that certain species were deadly and some nutritious, and I had not dared attempt eating them. Now, by the merest chance, I had discovered an edible species, and with a feeling of intense gratitude to the hare, I determined that his life should not be forfeited to my appetite, and that he should be rewarded by being spared. Without more ado, I removed the snare which I had taken so much trouble to prepare, and pocketed a large section of the fungus. That there was an abundant supply of this growth in the forest, I was confident, and as I walked toward the river, I searched on every log and stump for more. Several large masses were found, and as many of these had been partly devoured by small animals, I felt reassured as to the edible and nutritious qualities of the sponge-like material. I reached my shelter without much further adventure, and at once prepared to cook and sample the fungus. I was not at all sure as to the best method of cooking it, and decided to try a small quantity in various ways. I therefore placed a lump among the hot coals to roast like a potato, while another lump was hung on a green stick before the fire to broil. Hitherto, broiling and roasting had been my sole means of cooking food, but now, having remembered that Joe had once showed me how to boil water in birch bark, I made a rude pot of this material, placed water and fungus within, and set the whole over a bed of hot coals covered with ashes. The bit of fungus to be broiled soon shriveled up and was transformed into a leathery-like material, tasteless and useless, while the piece roasting in the coals sputtered and sizzled, and might as well have been a bit of pine bark at the end of a few minutes. Both of these methods were undoubtedly failures, and I watched with some anxiety the piece boiling in the birch bark pot. When it had boiled for some minutes, I fished a bit out, and as soon as it had cooled, proceeded to taste it. Much to my joy, it had quite lost its musty, woody flavor, and was as sweet, nutty, and palatable as a boiled chestnut. And I at once drew forth all that remained in the pot and dumped in all I had left. Words cannot express the satisfaction I felt at thus having discovered a source of vegetable food which I could gather as I traveled along and which would assure me a supply of provisions without the trouble and labor of trapping animals, catching fish, or hunting frogs and mussels. As soon as my meal of fungus was finished, I arose and, taking my frog spear, made my way to the brook and my muskrat trap. It was with quite a little excitement that I pushed my way through the thick growth toward the runway where the deadfall was placed, for even with my newly acquired knowledge of edible fungus, I felt that meat would be necessary, or at least welcome, during my tramp, and the success or failure of my first trap meant much to me. But I had no cause to worry. The deadfall had been sprung, and it had served its purpose well, for projecting from beneath the log was a furry head. Even before I reached the trap, I thought it the largest muskrat I had ever seen. And as I stooped down to lift the log, I uttered an involuntary cry of amazement. The creature I had caught was no muskrat, but a great fat beaver. Truly, my first attempt at trapping had been a huge success. End of chapter 3